1: Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
0: And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. Normally, I have a rant, usually related to something ufological. But there's so much going on in the world that I'm so angry about, and I don't want to get political, so we'll just skip that. (laughs) It's just been wild all around, I suppose. Uh, Today I'm joined by Klaus Sven, who is is the chairman of the Archives for the Unexplained, the AFU in Sweden. It was founded in 1973 and today spans over 6,500 square feet and 4,000 yards of shelf capacity. Uh, he has been a professional journalist since 1978 and employed with Sweden's largest newspaper I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I'll get it wrong Uh, since 1990 he is an international director of UFO Sweden and has been investigating reports of alleged UFOs since 1974 he is also an author of nearly 30 books and a frequent expert on Swedish radio and TV and now on American TV and radio as well. So there we go. He is living outside of Stockholm and his wife, Analia,
1: Natalie,
0: Annalie. Thank you. Um, has two grown sons. Welcome to a different perspective.
1: Thank you, Kevin. Nice to be with you.
0: It's nice to... Uh, get the international flavor going here for a different perspective. Uh, We've uh, done a couple of people from Europe, but we haven't done anybody from Sweden and and certainly not somebody of your stature in the world of the UFO. So I certainly appreciate you taking time to speak with us today. Uh, I know it's the basic question and everybody asks it and I've been around 30 years doing interviews on radio and television. And they always ask me the same question, and I'll pose it to you. What got you started in your interest in UFOs?
1: Well, I started reading uh, newspaper articles when I was maybe 11 or 12, which is, uh, well, it's quite far back now when I, when I think of it. It's in late 1960s. So uh, I got curious about uh, those articles, what people really saw in the sky, if they saw what they thought they saw, or if there could be anything else. So uh, in 1974, I started my own UFO society. Uh, I was 16 at that time. And uh, I really wanted to meet the witnesses. I wanted to see what kind of people they were, to listen to their stories and to try to find an explanation so that really started me. I was curious, I wanted the explanation. Uh, I've never been into this just for the for the mystery. Mystery is fine, but answers is so so many times better to me.
0: Well, What's interesting is something you said there is kind of where I was uh, myself was I wanted to talk to the witnesses. I wanted to see how what they said related to what was being published and said by the authorities about it. Uh, and, I, and I've told this story several times, uh, when I was in high school, one of my friend's mother had seen a UFO and at the time in the 1960s, it was always well these things are just blobs of light in the distance or fuzzy objects you really can't make anything out my question to her I wanted to talk to her. And the one question I had for her was, was it a distinct object and she said it was about 200 feet above the barn and she got a very good look at it, and it was very distinct and very clear, and that kind of expanded. Uh, from that point and i began to use my um, travels with the military i got out of high school and went right into the army and when we were in a different location i would take an opportunity to go to the newspaper morgues and look up stories about ufos what had been happening in those areas and that kind of it kind of expanded out uh, from there so i think it's kind of we had sort of the same passion built into us when we began the research
1: absolutely i think uh... Putting your, your boots on the ground when it comes to meeting the witnesses, doing the research, is paramount, really. There so many armchair ufologists you can see on, or experts on TV and whatever, that really has not done the field work. And uh, you must do that to understand uh, the witnesses and to understand, really, the phenomena as well.
0: One thing that... Uh... Interested me, of course. Everybody says, "Well, the modern era began in June of 1947 with the Kenneth Arnold sighting here in the United States." And I've, since then, said, "Well, there were the ghost rockets in Sweden in 1946, and of course the Foo Fighters of the Second World War." That pushes the modern era back several years and removes it from just a, um, I guess, an American-centric point of view, but to a more worldwide uh, point of view. I I know you've done a lot of work in the ghost rockets and. Uh, tell us a little bit about the ghost rockets, what it was, and is there a conclusion of what those were or their explanations for it? How did all that uh, transpire?
1: Let me first say that we had the ghost aircraft, ghost flyers in the 1930s in Sweden as well. And that was even as big as the ghost rockets in 1946. So uh, we were used to, to having reports of unidentified flying objects over our borders. So, um, the year after the war ended, 1946, really everyone was very glad that the war was over and uh, the military build-up had had paused in a way. So, um, and suddenly there came reports from all over Sweden that people saw first lights in the sky in the winter, and then in May, the first reports of uh, objects, really metallic, cigar-shaped objects flying over the sky. And uh, the Swedish military got interested uh, in uh, early summer, and they started this uh, committee of uh, experts trying to find the explanation of the hundreds and hundreds of reports that poured in from all over Sweden. And uh, people saw those uh, rocket-like things not just flying, but on many occasions also diving down into lakes and crashed there. That was very strange because not a single ghost rocket ever crashed on land. All the reports we have, and there are quite many, are are objects coming down into the water with a big splash and uh, often a sound uh, coming with that. And when the military came to those lakes, and investigated them. They could see water lilies thrown up on the shore and uh, large stones on the shore. And also they found indentations in the, in, the, in the bottom of the lake. But they never found a single scrap of metal or debris, which was very, very strange, of course, because they, they, they really searched for them for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there were hundreds of witnesses. And some of those Crashes into lakes were seen by maybe twenty or thirty people in, in a village because they heard the noise. They looked up and this, they saw this cigar-shaped object coming down. So uh, that's essentially uh, what the ghost rockets uh, were, and they never well, found me, an explanation to this.
0: Well, let me let me interrupt here for a moment. Um, you mentioned the ghost flyers, which yeah. were pretty. Uh, world war ii now i know that there was some speculation by some people skeptics whoever suggesting the ghost rockets were a soviet attempt to intimidate the the swedish government but if we're looking at the 1930s that would suggest it might not have been anything the soviets were doing but more importantly it it suggests a timeline that's much longer. Do the ghost flyers, do they relate specifically to the ghost rockets with the same kind of things seen with doing the same things?
1: No, not really. I have read, I think every single report to be found found in the military archives, maybe over a thousand reports of ghost flyers. And most of them were just lights in the sky, but sometimes they heard um, sounds from engines and they were flying in very, very bad weather from time to time where no aircraft should be flying. Uh, that is a mystery, but there are very, very few really good cases left when you are, uh, look through all of those reports. The goes rockets on the other hand are filled with, with multiple witnesses, the sun shining in the hull, on the hull and uh, crashes. And of course, uh, many people in 1946 thought that this was the Russians trying to intimidate uh, Sweden. But at that time, the Russians were moving what they have found at uh, Peneminde and other places in in Nazi Germany. They they moved those V1 and V2 bombs into Russia. They were not flying them. Uh, And uh, the distances that must have been flown, if they were flown from Russia, are multiple times what were achievable at that time with any weapon known to us uh, today even.
0: Have you had an opportunity to go through the Soviet archives or the former Soviet archives looking for anything that would tie it into the ghost rockets? Or have any of your colleagues done that?
1: Yeah, we have been trying to do that. Uh, I went to Moscow in the early nineties and we retrieved copies of the KGB files, but they were more recent from the 1980s and nineties. I have never found a single trace in, in Russian archives relating to the Ghost Rockets. Uh, what we have found abroad is from, uh, from Washington, really, from your archives in the, in the US, where we can see that uh, the US military were very much interested in the Ghost Rockets because they thought it could be some kind of weapon that uh, they would love to know more about. and. Uh, This was kept under wraps quite a lot from the the Swedish point of view. And you can read in in former classified documents that the Americans should be kept out of this loop and uh, not to be informed. Uh, The British uh, were a little more informed. They were trying to get to Sweden as well to help out with radar units, trying to pinpoint where those ghost rockets came from. But the Swedish prime minister stopped uh, that. So this was uh, only done by, by the Swedish military in the end.
0: Well, it's interesting. There was a fellow, Colonel Howard McCoy, who was an intelligence officer, who was involved with studying the Foo Fighters during the Second World War on a high level committee. Hmm. Uh, from what I've read, he was in the American embassy in there, in uh, I guess, in Stockholm. Um, Looking into the idea of the ghost rockets as well back in 1946, or reading the reports or doing what research he could as an attempt to help uh, or understand what was going on. Have you come across his name, or are you aware of that sort of thing?
1: I don't recognize his name right out of the top of my head now. That's interesting if you have something documented about him. I know the Americans were trying to get information from their Swedish colleagues within the intelligence community. And they did in in 1948 because the ghost rocket wave didn't stop in 1946. It it, uh, continued for for many, many years. And uh, in 1948, uh, a ghost rocket crashed in a lake east of Stockholm, which was seen by the, the commander in chief, General Helge Jung at that time. He was the sole witness. Another guy was witness too, but he, he passed away uh, later on. But Salge Jung did see this. And that, that is the most high-ranking military I know of that they've seen uh, a UFO, really.
0: And I assume they didn't find any wreckage from the one that crashed in the lake?
1: No, but they, they spent a tremendous amount of resources trying to do that. And uh, they didn't find anything. But he saw this was in broad daylight. It was um, flying quite slowly. It was turning, it was diving, it was splashing and he took a rowboat and uh, together with his friend, he rowed out to the middle of the lake, but it was 18 meters deep. I mean, it was very, very deep. So he couldn't see anything, but they were scanning this lake with divers for, for weeks without finding any trace of, of this uh, ghost rocket.
0: Well, we're going to have to take a break here in a moment. When we come back, um, I'll explore this a little bit more. I had read that the Swedish government, Swedish military began to suppress the reports of the ghost rockets as it became sort of a big thing in Sweden in 1946. And that the it seems that the idea is that the ghost rockets ended their um, Attacks on Sweden in 1946, but you're suggesting it goes far beyond that time frame. Um, I want to explore the idea of a supp- suppression by the Swedish government because we had sort of the same thing here in the United States, and see if we can get a little bit more deeper into that. Uh, once again, I'm talking to Claes Sven. He is. big wheel in Swedish ufology. I'll say it that way as an easy thing. Uh, The website is www.afu.se, all lowercase, and that's for the uh, Archives of the Unexplained, which I think is a fine project. We will be back right after this with more information from Sweden, so stick around. And we are back on a different perspective. I am the host, Kevin Randall, which I probably didn't say early on in case you hadn't figured out who the host was. I'm here with uh Colossus Sven, we are talking now about the ghost rockets and when we went away uh, he had said something about them um, transcending 1946 going on long beyond that and I think an awful lot of the research at least as published in the United States suggests the whole thing ended in 1946 but it turns out to be something of a misnomer and the other thing that I was interested in I had read that the Swedish military the Swedish government began to suppress the reports of the ghost rockets in 1946, because it was uh, causing a lot of anxiety in Sweden. I know the same thing happened in 1947 in the United States uh, around July 9th. There's actually newspaper articles that said that the army and the navy moved today to suppress the stories of flying saucers whizzing through the flying through the atmosphere. So I wanted to explore both those both those ideas first. Um, did do you have evidence? Did you notice that the Swedish government worked to suppress the uh, idea of the ghost rockets
1: well uh, no not really they tried to stop the newspapers from writing exactly where the observations were made because they didn't want uh, uh, russia or whoever they thought it was to know uh, where the the, those observations have been done so many newspapers just wrote in the north parts of sweden or in the middle of sweden and so on but they never suppressed reporting per se. So everyone could really write about it uh, and report about it. And uh, I can see from the military archives that there are very, very few observations that uh, never surfaced in in newspapers as well. So they were not very successful in in suppressing anything if they did try to do that.
0: you said an awful lot of the ghost rocket sightings were just lights in the sky, but there were many that showed uh, some kind of an object as well. What did the objects look like exactly?
1: Yeah, I mean, the lights in the sky were really uh, observations in the nighttime and in the winter. But from May to August, September, uh, loads of the observations were were done in broad daylight. And there were really two different uh, types of ghost rockets. One was this typical cigar with uh, maybe seven, six, seven yards in length, with wings or without wings. So that are do- those two types you can you can refer to. And um, there were very, very few other kind of observations, which is strange. But when you are pouring through those 1,100 plus reports, which I have I read every single one of, you do not find flying saucers. You do not find uh, uh, Tic Tacs. You do not find anything at all like that which is strange. It, it should be more than, than just a rocket, but uh, it wasn't like that. It was rockets and full stop.
0: Well, when we say rockets, we think of uh, basically a cigar shaped craft, maybe with fins at the end of that sort of thing and a flame coming out the rear, pushing it forward. Uh, does that fit the description too? Were there people seeing the flames out the rear of the craft?
1: Sometimes they could see uh, flames and smoke. But in 90% of the cases, they couldn't see anything like that at all. But I spoke to one guy who filmed a ghost rocket. He was um, uh, he was uh, the owner of of a film uh, uh, bureau in in, uh, Gothenburg, and he was traveling to Stockholm and he stopped together with a couple of friends to take a break. And he was filming panoramas and filming his friends and whatever. And suddenly one of his friends were shouting, what is that, and pointed up in the sky. When he looked up, he saw this rocket, which he describes to me as you can say a Saturn V rocket flying like that with an exhaust after it, flying out from a cloud and in the next cloud, into the next cloud. And he took his camera, put his telephoto lens on it, and he filmed the rocket flying over the sky for maybe a minute or so. And after that, they traveled to Stockholm and they contacted the military and uh, they handed over this color film footage to the military and they developed it. And the next day they were called to to this uh, uh, meeting at the military headquarters. And the lights were dimmed and the film started to roll and it was completely blank and uh, there was nothing on it. And, and the man who took this footage, he tells me that we, when he changed to this telephoto lens, he uh, didn't adjust for for um, for the brightness of the sky. So um, the f stop was uh, was not right. So, just so it, wasn't, all...
0: it wasn't something that the military did to to destroy the film or anything like that. It was a mistake made by the cameraman.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what he, he, he tells me. And uh, there were lots of military men in this auditorium uh, and they were very eager to see the film. So it wasn't really anything like it was a setup or something like that. uh, It's very, very strange. And the interviews made by the military, uh, every one of those three guys were, were interviewed. We haven't found them. We have found everything else, but not the film and not the paperwork regarding this case. So that must be placed in some different uh, locality or in some different area that we haven't been able to to reach.
0: Well, I know going through the Project Blue Book files here in the United States, there's mention of a number of um, uh, films that have been taken and we've seen some of them. They have made it into the public arena. There's also mention of gun camera films. And I think Ed Ruppelt, who was the chief of Project Blue Book one time. Yes, I know you know these things. It's for the benefit of the audience to identify some of the players. mentioned gun camera films from uh, fighter planes that sort of thing and we haven't really found any of those uh, the, the question becomes you've had an opportunity to go through the military archives here in Sweden have you found any other films or gun camera films or anything like that have you found anything any photographs
1: I think we're in the same position as you are there I know about uh, at least uh, one gun camera film which uh, a civilian pilot was shown together with uh, a couple of uh, military pilots that was taken in the 1960s, was shot in the 1960s. And he saw that and he saw those uh, strange, also I think a little cigar shaped objects were flying away from the Swedish uh, fighter jet. But that film we have never been able to, to, to find. We have just the stories there.
0: Uh, that's kind of strange that you seem to have the same sort of problems we have in the United States. We hear about these things. We we see documentation suggesting that it exists. Uh, documentation with a provenance, not something that has been sent to us uh, anonymously, but uh, people who were involved talk about that. Ed Rupold in his book, for example, talked about uh, for the um, uh, green fireball seen over the desert southwest in the um, late 1940s that there we're going to put up cameras around to see if they could photograph these things. And at one point they did get one camera, I guess operational and did get a photograph, but I've never been able to find the photograph, but yet uh, in some of the official documentation, they talk about that. Seems like you're in the same position there in Sweden, when you're talking about looking at the military archives and the available photographic evidence.
1: And they are not so skilled as you may believe from time to time, I mean, in, in archiving stuff. We have found things in places that nobody had looked before Um, things are misplaced, Uh, not everything is uh, is a cover-up, of course, and people are just human. So uh, I I found uh, lots of of cases in a different city here in Sweden, which was military cases They were sent there on loan many years ago, and the the guy who who, who loaned them, he, he never turned them back, and nobody asked for it. So they were there for 20 years until I found it.
0: Well, are there good photographs of ghost rockets? I've, I've seen a couple and they're not very good. One, I think, is, is identified as a meteor as opposed to anything extra. Well, it would be extraterrestrial, I suppose, if it's a meteor, but <laughs> uh, uh, artificial, I should say. Uh, but are there good, any good photographs that you've come across for uh, the, the ghost rockets?
1: You know, there are only one. It's only one picture. And that is the one you are mentioning now. Uh, it was taken by, by a man in uh, Uppsala uh, and his wife. It was just a fluke. They were taking a picture of a view. And at that time, a ball a very large meteor, a daylight meteor entered the atmosphere and it was captured on this picture. And that picture, of course, were, were published all around the world uh, as a ghost rocket. But it wasn't. It was seen over a large area in Sweden. And it's uh, no doubt it is a, it's a meteor. And that is the only one, really. And the film, of course, I mentioned, which we have not been able to, to find. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry to say.
0: Uh, so you said uh, the, the ghost rockets transcended 1946 and into the 1980s, I believe. Um, even further. Even further. Uh, what are some of the really good sightings of, of ghost rockets from uh, later times that you've looked into?
1: Yeah, one of the... The very best one is from July the 27th, 1999. Uh, it was uh, seven people uh, scattered around the lake on three different locations. Uh, it was the middle of the day. And they heard a sound from, from the sky, and I looked up, and there came this ghost rocket-like thing flying. And it was moving horizontally. But when it arrived to a lake, it turned and dived straight into the lake. And uh, it was a big splash. And the military were, were called there and they sent divers and they looked for this uh, ghost rocket for uh, several weeks on two different occasions. Uh, they tried to cover this up and told this, it was just a uh, military training that were going on around the lake to keep the, uh, the public away from it, of course. Uh, I interviewed all of those seven witnesses, and uh, also some of the military that were involved in this. And we don't really know what what uh, what happened, but they didn't find anything. Uh, it was a very strange thing because it was in the, in daylight during quite a long time, uh, maybe fifteen or twenty seconds. This was observed before crashing.
0: Well, we're talking about ghost rockets here, and a cigar-shaped craft, in essence, you get uh, sightings of flying saucers, disc-shaped craft, or egg-shaped craft, or any of the other varieties that uh, are reported around the world?
1: Yeah, I think we, we uh, get the same, quite, the same kind of observations here as you are getting in the US. Uh, flying saucers are not very common anymore. Um, cigars, not very common anymore either mostly you would think that people now carrying those uh, mobile cameras with them all the time that there should be loads of very very good pictures but it isn't like that at all we get so many pictures and they're only specks of lights and very bad uh, i mean you can identify 99 of what people are, are capturing with their mobile cameras so every year there are a couple of cases that are of interest and we had one case last year out of nearly 300 that we we labeled ufo uh
0: since you've mentioned cell phones uh, there's a phenomenon i've become aware of where people are attempting to photograph a ufo with their cell phones, they'll get audio, but the pictures won't turn out. They won't get uh, good quality pictures. Uh, the screen is blank or the camera doesn't work properly. Have you run into anything like that?
1: Well, what what we know is that people are very, very bad to handle their cameras. They don't really know the limitations of them. And um, they're very, very hard to, to keep the focus on what they are seeing as well because the autofocus doesn't work very well when it comes to a small object in a distance. But uh, we're not getting that many many videos with just audio. But the good thing is that when people are taking pictures, we got a time stamp and a GPS stamp. So we know for certain the exact time of the observation and where the, the, the guy or, or whoever it was took the picture. And that is really some improvement, even if you cannot see anything at all. Uh, in the picture.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, We're going to have to take another break here. I'm with Klaus Sven. We are talking about the ghost rockets and Swedish UFO sightings. We'll move on here in just a moment. Uh, I'll have some additional information up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And and just for fun, if uh, you... Happened to be out and want to buy a book. I did a book called Level Land, which deals with the UFO sightings in Level Land, Texas, in November of 1957, where cars were stalled, the Air Force came in, and there was good evidence of a cover-up and a lack of competent investigation. So anyhow, we'll be back right after this, so please stick around. And we are back. We are practicing social distancing because... I'm in the United States. The producer happens to be up in Canada and the guest is in Sweden. So we're doing an international uh, program here from areas all around the world, practically, which I think is fascinating. Uh, When we went away, we were still talking about the ghost rockets and how they didn't end in 1946. And what kind of strikes me here is after 1947, when Kenneth Arnold made his sighting and the term flying saucer was invented that we got an awful lot of disc-shaped craft. Uh, My question would be, did you see um, that sort of phenomena as well, disc-shaped craft after 1947, we began talking about flying saucers or did did what was reported in Sweden stay as uh, the ghost rocket type thing, the cigar-shaped craft?
1: No, we got uh, quite a few flying discs, flying saucers, here in Sweden as well. And the thing was that the military was very, very interested in observations during the 1950s. They had a special bureau with people who focused on uh, trying to identify all those UFOs that were reported to to the military. And uh, they took it very seriously. They did uh, very thorough and very good investigations as well. So they could identify a lot of those observations, but not everyone. You can see that uh, we also got quite in many interesting reports from Swedish uh, aircraft, uh, free, uh, airmen as well, and the radar returns uh, from uh, Swedish air bases as well. So there were hard evidence that, uh, that we had intruders that we didn't really know at that time where they came from. But in 1965, the Swedish military decided to hand over all of their files to another unit and they stopped really investigating UFO reports anymore. And after that, the Research Defense Institute in Sweden has handled the UFO reports. And in late 2000, 2020s, we uh, are, they are referred to us. Uh, if they are reporting uh, to the military, we, they are referred to us to UFO Sweden instead.
0: Well, uh, the idea is the Swedish military got out of the investigating business. and it w- Was it turned over to another governmental agency or was it uh, civilians who were now investigating the UFOs?
1: Well, it's a branch of the military really, but it's an independent branch and uh, it's, not, it's not civilian entirely. It's connected to, to the military establishment. But uh, the investigations were not made by military anymore. It was made by, by civilians.
0: Well, what I find interesting here now is, is talking about that, I think, I think of what was going on in the United States, uh, where the Air Force was investigating the UFOs up until uh, well, 1969 when they quit, but I'm thinking instead of 1953 with the Robertson panel, which was a CIA sponsored study of UFOs, and they changed the dynamic of the investigation to let's see what's going on, to let's debunk this whole sort of thing moving up through 1969. And then the Air Force announced we're not going to be investigating anymore. And I think there's evidence that there was governmental investigation beyond 1969. Uh, you're suggesting a Swedish pattern that is somewhat similar to that.
1: Hmm. In many ways, I should say, but uh, the Defense Research Institute had uh, many, many skilled researchers, and uh, they spent a lot of time trying to find out what people really saw in the sky. But nowadays, they have stopped that entirely.
0: Was it your impression that uh, the military in Sweden took took it very seriously and Continued to do serious investigations. You didn't see any evidence of incompetence or cover-up or anything like that in your research in their archives.
1: No, no. On the contrary, they were quite skilled. Many of those involved, especially during the 1950s and 60s, they were very, very good. But also in the in the 90s and up into the 2000s, they were they were also quite good. They were interested. Many of those uh, men and women who did those investigations. I have had uh, trained uh, during field investigation training courses as well, so we have had very good contact with them, and they they know how you for Sweden work, and they are also very much into the same line of, of inquiry as we are. They want to know what lies behind what people see in the sky.
0: Well, I think the difference is the um, perception here in the United States uh, that they attempted to create was there's nothing to it. And the people who see these things are not uh, well-trained. They're not highly educated. They may not be the most sophisticated of people. It seems the Swedish attitude was somewhat different than that. Uh, Looking looking for the answers. uh, I suspect that the um, US Air Force our government had an answer that they found satisfactory, which may not necessarily be extraterrestrial, but they found a satisfactory answer and didn't want that to leak into the public arena. But you see nothing like that from Sweden.
1: No, I haven't really. And I think the difference comes to that UFO Sweden, has always been um, not seeing the military as uh, uh, a as, uh, as counterpart, more as a partner. We have really tried to work together And uh, that has created very, very good momentum in this. And we have been able to get information from the military uh, radar information uh, that uh, would have been impossible for for many UFO groups around the world. And that radar information has helped us a lot trying to find explanations in many, many different cases. And I've also seen the bona fide UFO on military radar uh, with my own eyes. And uh, that case was also observed, uh, reported by two two men who also t- took pictures of, of an object in, in uh, nighttime, very bright object, flying around the lake and leaving. So it's it's kind of a cooperation and uh, a, multi- uh, a respect for what we are doing from, from both sides.
0: In today's environment with everybody and his brother flying a drone. Um, Do you get a lot of reports that turn out to be drones, or is that any kind of uh, hindrance to your investigations?
1: Yeah, that you can say it is. It's a very, very big problem. And just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had four reports of drones uh, around the four Swedish nuclear plants. And uh, those reports were on the same day. And that created a a big stir, of course. So the intelligence uh, people started an investigation into this. And that made people report. So in just a couple of weeks, there were over 200 reports of drones coming to the police and and the secret police as well, the intelligence uh, unit. And I I just spoke to, um, to the investigators. And they told me that there were no traces that those were foreign powers doing this. And nearly all of those have been identified as other things than drones. It's just a handful left of those 200 that may be drones. Drones are a big problem, but people are also seeing and reporting what they are supposed to report. So when someone is asking you to report drones, people are reporting drones, even if they don't just are seeing specks of light in the sky.
0: I noticed in a case here in the United States a number of years ago, uh, two young men in New Jersey attempted to conduct an experiment to show how credulous UFO investigators were and how bad the witnesses were. And what they actually did was prove the opposite of that using a flares attached to balloons type thing. Uh, but it, what it suggested to me was the witnesses were much more competent in their reporting of what they had seen, and and it led to this idea of of the flares attached to the balloon. I guess what I'm wondering here is when they're talking about drones, you get a good description of a drone uh, type thing, or is it really kind of a ghost rocket with a new name attached to it, kind of like Tic Tacs became the new UFOs?
1: I'm I'm been. I'm writing articles from a newspaper of course and I wrote one article that, that said that drones are the new UFOs because UFOs is just a name and drones are just a name so people are reporting what they don't really understand and they call it by name and now it's drones so what they really are saying that we really don't know what we saw and uh, the experiment you are telling me about I've done that many many times on our field investigation training courses And uh, I'm not that uh, positive (laughs) when it comes to witnesses, I should say, because uh, we have been flying things in front of people, and they are failing in distance, and in how long they are seeing this by 20 or 30 times, something like that. Uh, People can describe what they are seeing quite good, but when it comes to telling the distance, How long it was how big it was you cannot rely on them and uh, the police are as bad as we are the investigator i talked with about the drone observations he told me that several of those observations were made by police officers and they were as bad witnesses as you and me are he said he he told me that so yeah
0: what i found interesting is during that experiment there was a um video that was on television, and the reporter was there interviewing the woman who had seen the thing. And as it moved, he said, Oh, look, it's flashing its lights. And she said, No, no, it's passing behind the trees, the trees were barren of leaves, and the flashing was caused by the branches sticking up in the way. And I thought that was quite astute of her to pick that up as the reporter didn't didn't notice it at all. So I think, you know, suggested that uh, yeah, they're 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 terrible at, at estimating the time. They're terrible at estimating distances and speeds. But the direct observation: here's the craft. Here's what I saw. It's much they're much more accurate in that respect.
1: If they know their environment, yes. If they are at home, or if they know exactly what they could see in daylight, uh, they are more accurate. But if you are in 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 a, in a place that are not really familiar to you, you are out on your own, really. And it's very, very difficult to, to know if there are trees there or, or not. That's, I think it's a problem.
0: Well, I think the, uh, the question becomes, so we're talking about drones, but some of the drones are actually not drones or something else is that's where you're going with this, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And do the descriptions match the ghost rockets from the past or are the descriptions somewhat different in today's environment?
1: Most of those drone reports are, are just lights in the sky in nighttime. nighttime. So uh, no one, not a single report, has been uh, described as uh, cigar-shaped or, or anything like a ghost rocket. It was quite a few years ago I, I stumbled upon a ghost rocket sighting again. Uh, so I think uh, in the 1990s, we investigated maybe 40 or 50 ghost rocket observations. But in the 2000s, very, very, very few.
0: So uh, we got drones kind of influencing the the research in, in an adverse way, I suppose. And you say it's just lights in the sky and that sort of thing.
1: Mm. You know, in the 1990s, we got those Chinese lanterns, which really was the same problem as the drones are now for us. People saw those flying formations and... Uh, there were loads of them here in Sweden. I think we got a couple of hundred reports some years of Chinese lanterns. I don't know if you have reports of Chinese lanterns in the U.S., but here they are quite a big problem. Were
0: big problem. We've we've run into that as well, the Chinese lanterns causing UFO sightings. We're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the, um, the AFU and what exactly that's doing and uh, where all you're collecting the data and how big are the archives and what we're finding out about that. And I'll have additional information about that as well on uh, my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. If I can pronounce my own name correctly here, uh, the website is www.afu.se for, uh, the archives of the unexplained And it's there in Sweden. And I've seen a picture in their book of, uh, you're collecting boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff, and I guess in Great Britain, so it's kind of a worldwide effort to collect uh, um, the archives from various UFO researchers and very UFO organizations, and we'll take a look at that uh, when we come back. I do want to mention I've got a book out called Level Land, which deals with the 1957 sightings, and it deals with an awful lot of um, car um, interference cases that took place starting in 1909 in England with a motorcycle involved moving up into uh, the um, 2020s here. Uh, give you an idea of that phenomenon continues on but it's uh, related to a very specific and small area. So well, I'll be back right after this with Klaus Sven and we will continue to talk about uh, the FEU. So please stick around and welcome back. I am here with Klaus Fenn. We've been talking ghost rockets a little bit more than I kind of planned on here. We've talked a little bit about drones, but we've also mentioned a couple of times the archives for the unexplained, which I think is an activity that you're deeply involved in. Uh, give us a little bit of background on this.
1: Yeah, we started in 1973, so we've been around for a while now. And we are situated uh, south of Stockholm. And you mentioned uh, in the beginning of the podcast here it was 6,500 square feet. It's really 7,000 now because things are happening quite fast when it comes to AFU. And uh, we have uh, we are expanding into new localities really every, every uh, third or four months, something like that. It feels like that as well, because we are, we are really saving uh, people's work ufologists, uh, people who have been interested into UFOs for all their lives. And suddenly when they are maybe getting old or passing away, uh, their relatives don't really appreciate what they have been doing. So they throw everything away in the dump, which is very, very common. And we want to stop that, of course. (laughs) And uh, I travel to Britain, as you mentioned, every year, not uh, the last couple of years because of the COVID situation. But I will be traveling again and uh, usually bring back around uh, two ton, of, two metric tons of material from from Great Britain. But we also got just the other day uh, 650 kilos from Canada, and uh, we have been saving loads of archives from all around the world, even from the U.S. We have uh, a large part of uh, the Wendell Stevens uh, collection, for instance, at AFU, uh very well known ufologist who passed away. Some years ago, we also have uh, lots of other American stuff. And uh, I mean, we have 55,000 volumes in our library. And most of them are, of course, in in English. And uh, we also try to save other languages, of course. We have a large Russian archive and a Japanese. And a couple of years ago, a guy from Tokyo came over for three days just to look into our Japanese. Okay. So and when you, you told me about the uh, Leveland, the Leveland book, I mean, the, the, in, the vehicle interference thing, uh, I helped the British UFO Research Association by traveling around Britain for 20 years, saving their files from every corner of Great Britain, bringing them to Sweden, scanning them, giving them on a hard drive when they were having their 50th anniversary in London. And thanks to that, they were able to write this vehicle interference book about British vehicle interference cases. They have never been able to do that without AFU's work because everything was scattered around into cellars, basements, people's houses. And uh, I I was there and I will go there again this uh, spring. I have 100 boxes waiting for me in London and a lots of other places around Great Britain. Uh, hugely important material from researchers that have spent all their lives doing this. And uh, it will just end up in the dump if we don't do this.
0: Do you scan any of the material and put it online for researchers around the world to look so that those who can't get to Sweden have an ac- access to it?
1: Yeah, we have scanned uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of UFO magazines which you can find on AFU downloads site. Uh, You can just Google AFU downloads and we'll find it there. And uh, we also scan, of course, lots of other material, but uh, much of it is is, uh, sensitive because you have the witnesses names there. So it's very hard just to publish it. But uh, we help researchers who are asking for material all the time and we are scanning every day, but we are living under an avalanche of material, So it's hard to to keep up the pace. We have one million newspaper clippings, just to mention one thing.
0: But they're not just in Swedish or um, German or French. It's a worldwide, worldwide, lots of English material there as well.
1: Very, very large Spanish archive. But uh, the the English, of course, the English language is uh, the most prominent when it comes to both the documents and uh, books, of course.
0: Is there a reason for that? Um, Other than it's just, I guess, the English language speakers have been collecting the stuff uh, with a greater fervor than uh, other places in the world?
1: I think uh, it maybe it's up to me. I've been traveling so much to England and the U.S. And, uh, of course, you find English material in both of those places. But... um, I, th- I think as well that most of the publications that have been published during the years have been in English. And uh, nowadays, most of UFO magazines have uh, vanished. Very, very few left. Most of them are online or, or uh, PDF. So, um, and that's sad, I think. I like, I like to keep the paperwork still and I feel to fill the paperwork.
0: You're aware, I'm sure, that QFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, has a scanning project as well going on. Have, have you worked with uh, David Mahler and uh, Mark Rodiger on sort of sharing information and getting it located in both places, uh, electronically and digitally, or is that something that's in the future?
1: Yeah, I, I know both of those gentlemen, of course. And I visited QFOS many years ago and uh, looked through their files, <clears throat> which were very impressive. And uh, we are planning to do something together in the future. And I really hope that we can do it in a, very, in, in a way that can help to benefit researchers all around the globe. Because as it is by now, it's very hard for researchers to find uh, a, co- a collection that spans all over uh, the international arena. Uh, different countries have their own files, of course. But AFU is the only archive in the world that really tries to keep this global. So, uh, and that we're very proud of. And I think we are the largest one as well. I will travel to Houston in a couple of weeks to the a presentation at Rice University about AFU, because they have the, this uh, symposium about uh, archives of the unexplained. So that I'm very much looking forward to.
0: So you're working with other people who are kind of archiving the material as well around the world. I've got uh, a digital copy of the project blue book files, which I'm sure you've got as well. But what kind of cracks me up about it is it's on a uh, external hard drive, which is about the size of a pack of cigarettes. And I am carrying around in my pocket the entire Project Blue Book files that I could access by plugging it into any computer that's available. And I think <laughs> it's just incredible that I can access all that information on it, on something I can carry in my pocket. So it's 130,000, I think, uh, documents.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. It's really fantastic. I mean, we have 25 terabytes digital uh, files uh, at this moment. So. Uh, it's quite a lot. And the uh, like blue book, we also have the, the microfilms. Uh, so we have those and in digital format.
0: So this is a project that, as you said, you've been working on since, what, 1973? Yeah. And it's now expanded. Uh, who pays for all of this? Uh, which is kind of a snotty question. but
1: <laughs> No, it's a relevant question, really. And uh, the important thing is that we only, we don't rely on one source of income. We have 50 people in Sweden that are putting money into this project every month. And I think one or maybe two from other countries, which is strange because the other countries around the world are using AFU more than the Swedes are. Um, But uh, by doing it that way, not relying on one big donor, uh, we are quite reliable and we are very, very secure not to vanish from from uh, from the face of the earth from one day to another because the money is coming in every month on so many small givers small donors and we are expanding that all the time to more and more small donors
0: so the financing comes from i guess other people who are interested in ufos and want to see that information is collected was there any surprises quickly, any surprises in the in the work you've seen? I mean, some, some case that you just found that was just amazing, uh, as you look through the materials coming from other countries?
1: Oh, so so many, so many. <laughs> and I got so many um, new context, thanks to that. I'm reading maybe files and I'm making a telephone call after that and try to find the witnesses. Uh, it's very hard to pinpoint any, any particular, but Alan, Alan Godfrey's uh, observation in 1980, the police officer in in, uh, Tord in in Great Britain, and his possible abduction in 1980. That was one of the cases we we saw turning up that way once. We also have his uniform uniform jacket now on display at AFU. Uh, So we keep lots of paraphernalia, posters, toys, stamps, you name it, everything connected to, to UFOs. and the unexplained. I mean, also the paranormal. We are are very, very big uh, on on the paranormal.
0: Well, I think that uh, one of the reasons you may not get a lot of donations from the United States is I don't think it's been well publicized in the United States to the various uh, organizations and people who are are interested in that, don't realize that uh, the operation is going on and that there's a way they can help fund it.
1: Yeah, you might be right there. I mean, we have been quite focused on Europe and uh, but most ufologists should know about us, I think. Uh, we've been around for so many years, and we're helping people all, all the time. Uh, because of, we are quite easy to find. If you just Google us, you'll you find UFO files. You will turn up at AFU. So, uh, but we are, we are very helpful, I should say. So please, ask us for help, and we will try to help you. Well,
0: listen, I think that's about all we have time for today. I really appreciate you sitting down at late at night in Sweden to chat with me about uh, the Ghost Rockets. I, I, I found it very illuminating because I had, had the impression that the Ghost Rockets was a phenomenon from 1946 in that time area, but it transcends all of that. So it's very interesting. Uh, once again, the website is www.afu.se. Thank you so much for taking your time.
1: Thank you, Kevin. Nice talking to you.
0: <laughs> Good talking to you and seeing you again, even though it's over the uh, the internet that way. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking to Tom Dooley. We're going to be talking about his research into UFOs and what he's found over his lifetime of research uh, about, about the UFOs. I'm completing a book, I think I've mentioned, called Understanding Roswell, which is just becoming bigger and bigger. And... Uh, it's it, to look at the case um, as a way of understanding all the various phenomena related to it, how everything has come together, looking at the alien autopsy, looking at the uh, Project Mogul explanation, looking at the, some of the witnesses who were less than candid in what they told us about their participation in the Roswell case, looking at some of those who just made up their participation in the Roswell case and try to uh, get to the core matter of this so you can understand exactly what happened in Roswell back in 1947. It's not quite mm-hmm. the same as I would have told you about it um, 30 years ago as we began the investigation, or even 20 years ago as we were kind of wrapping up some aspects of it. I think there are aspects of the case that really need to be looked at a little bit differently. I, and just as one quick example, uh, I discovered that Mac Brazzle brought material to the sheriff's office the first day when he came in to report this thing, brought in some material. The question then becomes, of course, uh, if he brought in the material and Jesse Marcel and then Sheridan Cavett saw it in the sheriff's office and it all it was was remnants of a Project Mogul balloon flight, why didn't they recognize it then and save them the trouble of having to go out and look at a field full of metallic debris? And why... Uh, Are we talking about it today? It could have been solved back in 1947 if it was a Project Mogul. I don't believe it was. I don't believe we have a terrestrial explanation for it, which doesn't necessarily take us to the extraterrestrial, just means we don't know what a solution is if it has an Earth base to it, under Earth bases to it. Um, As I mentioned, the Level Land book is out. Project Moondust is coming out again in an advanced or an updated edition, a publisher asked me to do that, it'll be out in March, so take a look for that. Uh, we will continue the research here. I will put more information up about the AFU and uh, the research done on the ghost rockets here on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you're interested in my Vietnam experiences, and I mention this periodically, the other is uh, www. Vietnam GroundZero.blogspot.com, Vietnam Ground Zero, all one word, all lowercase. And it'll lead you into some of my experiences in Vietnam. Now, as I say, I'll be back in 167 hours. And thank you for tuning in.